Welcome to the Bible for My Ordinary Life podcast. My name is Alicia Parker, and I'll be your host. Now, I live a pretty ordinary life, but I really enjoy studying and teaching the Bible. If you're interested in what the Bible really means and how it can be applied to your everyday, perhaps ordinary life, then this podcast is for you. You see, I believe the Bible is more than just a collection of interesting stories. It's God's communication to humankind. It's a revelation about who he is and how we fit into the story he is telling. Even if we feel like our personal story is a little bit ordinary. The Bible includes 66 individual books, but with a unifying theme, God desires a relationship with us. So let's open the pages of God's Word together and discover what extraordinary truths He has for our lives. Hey everyone, today we are jumping into a new chapter of Ephesians. In our previous episodes, we've covered chapters 1 through 3. And in those chapters, Paul laid out some important truths that have implications for what we believe about God and about ourselves. Now, chapter 1 covered God's plan of salvation and how we are adopted by Him through the work of Christ. Paul articulated a powerful prayer that he'd prayed for the members of this church where he expresses how much he wants them to have spiritual knowledge about the incredible spiritual riches God has for believers. And then in chapter 2, Paul reminds his audience of who they were and compares that to who they are now as a result of their faith in Christ. He reinforces that they are now in Christ and part of his family And even if they have felt excluded because of their non-Jewish nationality, the truth is they share a citizenship in God's kingdom. Chapter 3 dived into this concept a bit more, making it very clear that Paul's ministry was specifically for Gentiles and that it had been revealed to him to share with them that God's plan is for all people, not just Jews. That salvation and a spiritual inheritance no longer depended on what family you were born into, but rather on a belief in what Jesus did for you. Now, Paul offers another prayer on behalf of those to whom he is writing to at the end of chapter three. He prayed for spiritual strength and spiritual wisdom. And this prayer climaxes to the highest point of the letter where Paul offers praise to God, who is able to do far more than we can ask or even imagine. In our last episode, we explored this as a doxology. And now we arrive at chapter four. And in verse one, he says these words, Therefore, I, the prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received. All right, silly joke. And I know I've said it before, but I just can't help myself. When I see the word therefore, I have to stop and ask what it's there for. When Paul says therefore, he's transitioning and he's getting their attention by signaling to them to think about all the stuff he's just said. Like, I told you guys who you are in Christ, how you're part of God's family, how you're no longer like you once were, how I pray for you to have wisdom and strength, and keeping all of this in mind, now pay attention to what I'm about to say. Therefore, do you see the linkage he's establishing? He's just gone through three chapters worth of who they are and what God has done for them. And now he's saying, therefore, I urge you to walk. He's going to take all the teaching and doctrine and theology of the first half of Ephesians and use that as a launching pad into now. Here is how you respond with action. So let's look at verse one again. 
Therefore, I, the prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received. Now, back in chapter one, Paul had prayed that the perception of their minds would be enlightened so that they would know the hope of their calling. And what is that calling? One of the underlying themes of Ephesians so far has been unity. They are called into one family, God's family. Paul is urging them to walk in a manner that's worthy of that calling. And he's about to elaborate on what that looks like exactly. So let's start again in verse 1 and read a little further this time. Therefore, I, the prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, accepting one another in love, diligently keeping the unity of the Spirit with the peace that binds us. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Paul's first set of instructions in this half of the letter is to live in unity. Now, I want to peek ahead with you for just a minute so that you can see the pattern he's establishing in his writing. Later on in this chapter, Paul says, Therefore, I say this and testify to the Lord, you should no longer walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their thinking. Then in chapter 5, he says, Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in love as the Messiah also loved us and gave himself for us. And one more time later in chapter 5, he says, Pay careful attention then to how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. So you can see that four different times, Paul is going to urge them to walk in a specific manner. Now, walk here, of course, means how they live their lives, how they conduct themselves. Here in chapter four, we see Paul urging them to walk in unity. Then later, he's going to urge them to walk in truth. And in chapter five, he'll urge them to walk in love and then finally to walk in wisdom. And in between each of these urgings to walk in various ways, Paul is going to give them specific instructions of what to do and what not to do, because this is where he's getting very practical with his teaching. So before we go much further, let's pause and remember our context. We are reading someone else's mail. Originally, Paul intended this to be a letter to a specific church in Ephesus, and probably also intended or expected this to be passed around to some other local churches. But God's intention was for these words to be part of his revealed words to us, to all Christians throughout time. So yes, much of this applies to us today. But when Paul was writing this, he wasn't thinking about us. He was thinking of the first church of Ephesus. And when we read other people's mail, there are bits and pieces that might be hard to apply and might not actually be applicable to us at all. For example, there is no way I can do what Paul says to do in chapter 5, verse 19. He says these words, Pray also for me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth and make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. That is a verse in the Bible that is not applicable today. Paul's no longer here. 
we shouldn't be praying for boldness when he speaks and clarity of the gospel message when he opens his mouth. He's dead. He's in heaven. So what he tells his audience to do there does not apply to us. Now, before you think I've abandoned my belief in the inerrancy of the Bible, let me be clear. Yes, the New Testament is full of practical teaching that can be applied to our lives. And yes, every single word of the Bible is God-inspired and is useful for our lives. But we cannot forget the context that the author, the original recipients, and the culture played in crafting these letters. We must read and study God's word with this in mind and be prayerful in determining how the words Paul wrote, inspired by the Holy Spirit, can be interpreted for our application today. Now, much of what we study in this episode is an easy transfer, but I just don't want us to ever lose sight of this important framework for studying God's word. Now, Paul, at this time of writing this letter, is a prisoner. He identifies himself as a prisoner for the Lord and then urges them to live in unity and uses a series of descriptions. Now, let's take a closer look at what he actually says here. First, he says, walk worthy of this calling with all humility. Now, to walk worthy of their calling, it doesn't mean they have to earn their place in God's family. In some translations, the word is worthy, and in others, it's worthily. Now, actually, worthily is a more accurate translation. Now, uh, without diving too deep into grammar, worthily is an adverb. It explains or describes how to do the walking out or the living or the calling. Adverbs usually modify verbs. Worthy is an adjective. And adjectives usually describe or modify nouns, people, places, or things. But Paul doesn't describe the person doing the walking. He doesn't say, you, be worthy. It doesn't mean they have to do this list of things Paul is about to give them to earn God's love. He's established that they have already have God's love and a place in God's family. So to walk worthily is more like live out your identity. It's a description of the verb walk. Now we can see this in lots of non-spiritual realms. There's an expectation for how a U.S. Marine will conduct himself or herself. They will behave like a soldier. They will live like a Marine. And as a public school teacher, there's an expectation that I will conduct myself in the classroom like a professional teacher. And out of the classroom, there's an expectation that I will conduct myself like someone worthy of that description of being a teacher. You see, our behavior doesn't create our identity as a teacher or a soldier or a mother or a doctor or whatever role we have. Our identity defines expectations for our behavior. The same is true with the calling to follow Christ. So what does this look like? Walk worthily of this calling with all humility. Hmm. So don't be arrogant and full of self-praise because you belong to God's family. Be humble. Jesus demonstrated the ultimate humility in being willing to step out of heaven, put on flesh, and walk this earth only to be killed unjustly by his own creation. 
So the first thing Paul says here is walk out this calling to follow Jesus with all humility. I find it interesting and a little convicting, if I'm honest, that this is the first thing he tells them. Sometimes I find myself a little puffed up about my own so-called righteousness. It's so easy to look down on others who either aren't believers or perhaps they are part of God's family and somehow think that I am better or more capable or more spiritual than them based on a comparison of behavior or choices. But pride has no place in the walking out of our calling. It is God's love, God's gift, God's strength, God's grace that even makes the teachings of chapters 1 through 3 possible. We are part of this family because of God, not because of anything we've done. So the first thing to do to walk worthily of this calling is to remember this is nothing we've done to earn or deserve. Then he adds the word with gentleness. Now this word might be translated as meekness in your Bible. I have to work hard to think of meekness in the way in which it's intended here. It does not mean weak. It does not mean helpless. And it certainly isn't indicating that we should just roll over and let people walk all over us. But sometimes meekness makes us think of someone who has those characteristics. Now, one commentator I read described meekness as power under control. Meekness was a word used to describe war horses and other animals that had been tamed and trained to be under the control of their handler. Powerful, yet gentle and controlled. We know from the first half of Ephesians that we have tremendous power through our faith. Paul prayed for the people of Ephesus to know the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward those of us who believe. So, live out our lives in humility and meekness first. Then he adds this in verse 2 and 3. With all humility and gentleness or meekness, with patience, putting up with one another in love making every effort to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Humility, gentleness or meekness, patience, and putting up with one another in love. Now, I really love the phrase putting up with one another. The King's James Version translates this as bearing with one another, but I never think of that phrase with that style of English. I can, however, completely relate to the idea of putting up with someone. Can you? I've put up with bosses and co-workers and sometimes family members or church people. And I'm sure you can think of some people you have put up with in life. But Paul doesn't just say, put up with them. He adds a little phrase to the end of it. Did you catch it? Put up with one another in love. Oh, wow. We are two verses into this practical section of this letter and I'm already being challenged. I need to be humble and gentle patient and lovingly put up with my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Yes, that is exactly what walking worthily in the manner of being called a Christian looks like. On the surface, this can seem easy. I generally think I'm a nice person and easy to get along with. I don't really fight or have too many disagreements with those in my church. But what if I dig a little deeper? 
am I truly humble and gentle and patient and lovingly able to put up with those in my family, my husband, my kids, my siblings, my parents? Those are the people I spend the most time around. I can be very nice and meek for an hour on Sunday. Uh, Notice I didn't claim to be humble. Uh, That just seemed a little too ironic there. But if I have to serve alongside of someone who rubs me the wrong way for any length of time, do I truly exhibit patience? Do I put up with them in love? What if they aren't being humble and loving and meek back to me? Do I match their attitude? Or do I walk worthily of my calling? These descriptors of how to live out our calling can be much more challenging than just showing up Sunday and politely smiling at one another while we do the usual, how are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. How are you? Great. Good to see you. This goes deeper. Walking worthily means these characteristics define every part of our lifestyle, our behavior, our words, our attitudes in every environment we find ourselves. Let's keep reading to get a sense of why this is important. This is verse three. Making every effort to keep the unity of the spirit in the body of peace. So there is a unity that needs to be kept. It comes from the Holy Spirit. Why is this noted here? Remember our context. This letter was sent to a New Testament church. The church consisting of both Jews and Gentiles at this time was a new concept. I mean, Paul just got done explaining that the availability of equal grace and equal love and equal inheritance was now expanded to all Gentiles, not just Jews. So unity is a really important concept to these believers. He wants them to make every effort to keep that unity. Prior to this, there was no reason for unity. The Jews were intentionally separate from the Gentiles. So let's keep going with verses four through six. There is one body and one spirit, just as you two were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, in each episode, I try to highlight at least one composition clue that we can use to better understand how to read the Bible. I bet you picked up on the word that was repeated seven different times in the verses we just read. Anytime we see something repeated over and over, we need to pay attention to that. The author is developing a theme or emphasizing a point. It's a writing technique called repetition. Writing techniques or what I call composition clues help us dig a little deeper into the original meaning and the purpose behind the author's words. So Paul uses repetition here. He says the word one seven times. Do you know what one means in Greek? (laughs) One. That's it. Nothing deep here. It just means one. (laughs) So what are the seven ones? And what does Paul try to teach his audience through the repetition of that here? There is one body. Now, what is Paul referring to? If we flip back and look at Ephesians 1.23, Paul had actually already defined this. This verse says, Now the church is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. The audience is a church, and it's a church of Gentiles trying to figure out what this new life in Christ looks like. So he starts by saying, Hey church, you are one body, figuratively speaking. 
you group of humans are now Christ's figurative body since he has literally ascended to heaven. Now, the second one is the spirit. There is one spirit, refers to the Holy Spirit. And as we're about to see, Paul is going to list the three persons of the Trinity here. He starts with the spirit. The Holy Spirit is the person of God that is here on earth, that is indwelling in believers. Paul is orientating them. Live this life worthily and with these characteristics. The unity we have is in the spirit and it's from the spirit. We are one body. There is one spirit. We all have one calling. Those are the first three of the seven things noted here. One body, one spirit, one calling. He wants them to understand that living worthily of their faith is to be done in unity. Okay, let's go on to the next couple of ones. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Just like Paul notes there is one spirit, he now notes there is one Lord. He's referring to Christ here. Our faith is in Christ. That is a unifying principle of Christianity. Now, admittedly, there are a lot of things Christians can disagree with. But our faith in Jesus as the only way of salvation should unify us. And then Paul lists baptism. There is one baptism. Now, this probably doesn't refer to how you are baptized. Because let's be honest, we can probably disagree on how to baptize. Sprinkling versus dunking. Baby baptism versus adult baptism. How we baptize is not a unifier. Am I right? But let's look at Mark Chapter 10, verse 38, Jesus says to his disciples, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or to be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? When we read this verse, we know that Jesus isn't talking about a literal cup or talking about a specific way he will be baptized. He's referring to his death, the cup of death, the baptism of death, burial, and resurrection. In a letter to the Galatians, Paul says in chapter 3, verse 27, For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. Again, we read this knowing it's not literal. We all weren't literally baptized with him. It's figurative language describing that when we believe in Christ, we accept that his death, burial, and resurrection was like a baptism and our sin was atoned for then. So we were in Christ, baptized in him in a spiritual sense. And I think that's what Paul is referring to when he lists one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Now, there were a lot of things that were unique about these individuals in Ephesus, just like we have individuality today. There were divisions among them based on racial heritage, which unfortunately is also not uncommon today. But Paul wants them to know that they are to live out this life worthily in unity. One body, one spirit, one hope and calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And finally, verse 6, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Paul ends with the final member of the Trinity, God the Father. This verse reminds me immediately of Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This verse 
is the first verse of the Jewish Shema, and it's an important prayer prayed twice a day in Jewish culture. It emphasizes God's oneness, his unity. These Gentile believers may or may not have been as steeped in Jewish traditions as their counterpart Jewish Christians, but the idea of there being one God was incredibly important. Their culture was saturated with the worship of many Greek gods. I mean, Ephesus was home to the temple of the Greek god Artemis. Paul wanted to drive home the point that Jesus was not just another god to add to their list of Greek gods. There is only one true God who consists of three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, where does that leave us today? If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, let's commit to walking worthily of our calling to be part of God's family. Let's examine our lives looking for evidence of humility, meekness, patience, and bearing with others in love. And let's diligently work at keeping the unity created by the Holy Spirit. We are all part of the same family, the family of God. Thank you so very much for taking the time to listen to today's episode of The Bible for the Ordinary Life. My name is Alicia Parker. I hope you learned something and our time together encouraged your personal relationship with God. Be sure to check out my companion website at www.bibleforttheordinarylife.com or connect with me on Instagram at Bible for the Ordinary Life.